Hello, and welcome to Dungeon Talk, the general advice and discussion podcast from D&D Academy. I am Michael, and this is Dungeon Talk episode number 38, Synergies of the Multiverse. So in this episode, we expand our horizons a little bit, and we talk about a board game. First time we've done that. We uh, Caleb's one of his favorite all-time games, and sounds like his favorite board game, is Sentinels of the Multiverse. I had tried to play it once by myself, and it didn't work very well. So we set up a Google Hangout last night to record this podcast, and we also went ahead and played a session of the game. It worked pretty well. It worked well enough to teach me the game. I now feel comfortable that I could play it myself or at my home, which I anticipate we will play at our D&D Catacon next week. But I don't know that I would want to do it often, just uh, the, the setup of me trying to keep up with what's going on, because uh, Caleb ran pretty much the whole game. He ran two other heroes and the villain and the environment. I just ran my hero, and he gave me an easy hero to run. But it does seem like a cool game. I had fun. I can see myself enjoying it, similar to how I like Legendary, just the, the superhero motif. So I definitely will be trying that one out again. The majority of the podcast, though, we talk about synergy. We uh, we had one of our friends of the show, Matt Parody, send in his uh, suggestion for a synergy. He actually bought his own pack of cards and uh, sent in his idea and then asked us to do the same. So we did. And then we also posted that on the website as well as on Facebook. And we had another friend of the show, that one GM, send in his as well. So we have four synergies for the same cards. Uh, just so you can play along, here are the cards that we got in that pack. It was a Theros booster, and the cards were Ill-Tempered Cyclops, Fleetfoot Sandals, Helod's Emissary, Spear of Heliod, Guardians of Miletus, Two-Headed Cerebus, Artisan Sorrow, Cavern Lampad, Arena Athlete, Sedge Scorpion, Battlewise Valor, Traveling Philosopher, Time to Feed, and Baleful Idiolan. The uh, land card was a forest. So you'll hear four different synergies that all use that card. There is some similarity, particularly between mine and Matt's. Some of the cards truly lended themselves to a literal interpretation, but they're different enough that I felt like it was still a good exercise. And uh, <clears throat> the last thing here for the intro, we got another five-star review on iTunes. Last time we did, I read it as part of the intro, and the guy who wrote it thought that was really cool. So I thought I'll keep doing that. So people keep writing iTunes reviews, I'll keep reading them. So this one is by LK Magnifico, and the title is Great Insights and Discussions. LK Magnifico goes on to write, I am a pretty new DM, and this has been a great help to me. Dungeon Talks are shows where they discuss various game issues surrounding tabletop RPGs, not just D&D. The show is great for giving new and experienced players ideas for their games at home. The Campaigns is a great series of games and playtests with fun characters and a good DM. The sound quality in the early episodes isn't fantastic, and let's be honest, that's being generous, but improves with time as the popularity of the podcast allows Michael, Evan, and the gang to get better equipment. I listen to it while doing homework to get ideas for my games. Keep up the good work, guys. Non-aspiring writers out of 10. So thank you very much, LK Magnifico. You are LK Mucho Magnifico in my book. And anyone else that would like to have me read their their iTunes review, all you got to do is write one. Uh, same thing goes for Stitcher. So you have the ability to write reviews on Stitchers as well. So if you write them, I will read them. So here is Dungeon Talk Episode 38, Synergies of the Multiverse.
hello, Caleb. Hey there. Thank you for joining me once again. And uh, it, it was really your suggestion to cover Sentinels of the Multiverse. You, you've, you've mentioned before that it's one of, if not your favorite game. I don't know if that includes all games or just board games, that kind of thing. Uh, but you're a huge fan of the game, so I'm just going to let you gush for a little while and talk about the game. <laughs> yes, I would say that it's probably one of my favorite games of all times, hands down. Nothing I'm going to say here has not been said by other sites, other um, reviews of the game that are probably much more detailed and eloquent than I can put it. In short, though, Sentinels of the Multiverse is a cooperative, non-collectible card-playing game. Uh, each player has a deck of cards similar to Magic the Gathering in that you have multiple powers, buffs, debuffs, gear. This is a, a superhero uh, environment, let me say that. I should have said that first. Um, so think kind of DC analog. You've got a Superman type, a Batman type, but it bleeds a little into Marvel too. You've got an Iron Man type, a Hulk type. This game is built in its own comic book world. The comic book does not exist, but the creators of the game uh, wrote it uh, as if the comic book was, in fact, there. One of the best parts of the game is that the art and the cards actually reference comic books that don't exist. Very funny, uh, very interesting mechanic there. And uh, a lot of the art is... Uh, kind of giving away spoilers and secret little hints to the overall story arc. So it really proves uh, and shows the dedication and passion that these guys have for making this game. Uh, there's a core set out right now. There are currently four expansions that are viable, and there's a bunch of little mini expansions, other heroes and villains that were just released independently. I had the, uh, the pleasure and fortune of meeting these guys at the Origins Gaming Convention in Columbus, Ohio, uh, just about a year ago. Uh, I met them at the con, played a couple games with them, that's where I learned to play it, and fell in love with the game so hard I bought literally everything they could sell on that day. <laughs> um, it's, it's a really great cooperative mechanic in the sense that you are assisting your, your fellow superheroes in combat, it's not so much one player wants to win, so you're hoarding the good cards for yourself, but it's encouraged to table talk and plan out your, your tactics and say, hey, I've got this one really good card, so set me up to play it. Or, um, no, 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 I, I can kill the guy in one shot to free you up to do fill-in-the-blank. So as much as I love playing uh, games where we are competing against each other, it's really fun to play a cooperative game where you do not need to have one person be the game master to run the game, so to speak. You can all participate together, and it makes for a really good time. So what is it about the game that you like the best? Is it the cooperative aspect? Is it the comic book motif? Kind of all of the above. I'm, I've always been a big comic book nerd, so I love playing superheroes. I love the mechanics of the game. It's very simple yet very in-depth. You can play a really quick surface game, just do damage, 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 but you can also play a deeper tactical game and really plan out good moves. The, the, the heroes are pretty evenly split. You've got some great damage-dealing characters. Uh, you've got some great healers and buff and, and defense characters. 
and within each character deck, you really have uh, kind of at least two, maybe three different ways to play a given hero. Great example, uh, Michael, you played a hero called Legacy tonight as we were screwing around with the game. Legacy is kind of the cross between Captain America and Superman in this game world. You managed to get some great card pulls and do a lot of damage, but if you hadn't gotten those pulls, you would have found that he was much more of a backup tactical player where he was giving buffs to the other heroes to do more damage, or he in turn was taking damage, being the tank of the party, so to speak. So I love those mechanics. It's really easy to learn. I mean, we picked up the game in a five-minute demo at the convention. I've taught this game to quite a few people, including uh, all of the uh, female spouses of our gaming group. And this is a game that even they get into and like, and they are not the typical gamers at all. They don't usually play D&D with us, but they, they really like playing Sentinels. So that's cool. I love the world of the game. I love the artwork. I love the fact that these guys basically have this entire comic book world that they let us see the story of little by little as they reel out these these expansions to the game. We meet new characters. We see new events. Um, the guy that does the art, I forget his name. I apologize, but he is so fantastic. And you can see his art improve from one set to the next. The most recent set that came out is called Vengeance, and his artwork has just gotten better. So it's fun to see that develop, and it's really fun to see the little bits of the story, the teasers, you know, in the card artwork. Think of, you know, the the artwork uh, like on a magic card where you see a hero or a background character or two people fighting. There's pretty much nothing on any of these cards that is not important in some way or another. You know, you can see heroes or villains in the background in silhouette or doing a certain action or playing out a certain event in the storyline. And you can really build the multiverse, that story of the multiverse, simply by looking at the artwork. And that just represents a level of dedication that is outstanding to me. So I if it, probably is it get off the, my soapbox. Well, is, is it the same artist that does all the art? Yep, absolutely. All right, it looks like his name's Adam Ribotaro. I don't know how you pronounce that. Ribotaro? Yeah. Ribotaro? Yeah. So yeah, so we, I, I think I told you before, I bought the game off your suggestion. Like you, you were really high on it. I had a couple extra Amazon certificates to blow, so I picked up the the base set and I tried to play it by myself to teach myself the game. And I'm not, that's not the type of learner that I am. And it didn't work out very well. And I was discussing it with you, and it just seems like part of it was just my villain got really good draws and my hero got really bad draws, and I pretty much got slaughtered. Where yeah. when we played it tonight, it was it was pretty easy. Like I, there really wasn't a whole lot of sense of danger that I thought we were going to lose. There was never even the worst turn for us wasn't that bad of a turn. But again, we were playing the easiest villain to defeat. We were playing one of the most benign environments. So I can definitely see how you could scale up the difficulty. Uh, I'm definitely interested in playing it again. We're gonna probably play it at my uh, mini con we're having here in a couple weeks, the D and D Catacon. It's a thing. It is a thing. It is a thing, or it will be at some point. We can, we can say it, it was a thing, it is a thing. Uh, <laughs> so I'm definitely interested in playing it around the table. And you know, I've said before, I'm a huge fan of Marvel Legendary, even though I am not a deck-building guy, I guess. Like, I've played other deck-building games and not liked them at all, but there's just something about the hero you know, theme or mo- motif of Legendary that I really enjoy. But 
even though it's a cooperative game, Legendary doesn't always feel cooperative to me. Like I, I actually kind of prefer just playing it by myself, which is why I said I would pay upwards of $40 for an app for it, because I just like the, I, I like the mechanics and how it works, but the cooperative part is really more, hey, we need somebody to kill this guy before he escapes. Can you do that on your turn? Good. Where this was really, everything worked together. It was truly cooperative in that everything I did pretty much affected someone else or had the ability to affect someone else. And I could see this as in a longer game that you know lasted a few, you know, more turns where that would be more important and more integral to the success of the game is using those cards that work together. So I really liked that aspect of it, the, co- the truly cooperative play. Yeah, um, we didn't really pull some of the heroes that were more uh, cooperative and tactical. I picked some of the heroes that were essentially the best damage output, just to give you a little bit better taste of the game as we played it. But there are a lot of heroes that are essentially nothing but giving people extra turns, extra card pulls, that kind of thing. There's a a Batman-esque character, and she has a lot of good tactics to pull cards out of people's decks, prevent cards from being played, that kind of thing. It, it just it's a really great way for people to play a game together and you all want to win. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about other games was because well frankly as much as we love Dungeons and Dragons we can't play it every single day or every single week just due to schedules. Eventually you get burned out a little bit whether you're a player or a GM running it. So you want to be able to mix it up. You know you might have someone who wants to play with uh, play at the game night but just doesn't like playing Dungeons and Dragons or hasn't learned how to play and doesn't want to invest the time. So, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with busting out another game at some point. Well, no, absolutely, and I think this could be uh, two points there. Is this, this could be a gateway drug, so to speak, as you mentioned, that yep. uh, the non-gamer spouses of your regular gaming group enjoy this game, and it's always great to find a game that does bridge that gap and allows you to play with uh, significant other spouses or, or friends who aren't quite into gaming the same level as maybe we are. And this is a game that you could start with and then have someone go, wow, this is really cool playing a superhero. Oh, you know, by the way, there are superhero RPGs, and you know, you might be able to get them uh, in, into that. The other thing that I, like, one of my frustrations with the AP podcast that we've been doing for the campaigns is that I have had a lot of issues with player attendance. One person will come one game, they'll, they'll not the next. One of the, the series of podcasts I mentioned a couple times now, that DMing 101 thing I'm doing, I had four players the first game, two players the second and third game, and then I had four players, but one of them was different the fourth game. Hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to put a series of podcasts together to help teach people how to write adventures or how to run them, and then I have wildly inconsistent player attendance, which makes that difficult. So I'm starting to, to think that I'm, what I might just start doing is if I can't have a, not necessarily a full table, because usually I go by, if one person misses, we'll still play, and then just break out the board games if that happens. If we can't get you know the minimum table minus one, then rather than messing with the story, I'll just say, okay, it's board game night instead. Because I hate canceling. That's one thing I'll, I'll just mention, that I have seen so many game groups just die if you cancel more than one game. If it's like, hey, it's Tuesday, can't get together, all right, we'll cancel. Next week, can't get together, you cancel. That group is probably done. You'll be lucky if you can salvage a couple players out of it and start a new one. So I I hate canceling games. 
but I'm getting very frustrated on occasion with inconsistent players in a game that I'm, you know, I'm trying to present as a story to other people who are listening, and I think it harms the story overall when we do that. Bit of a tangent there, but back to the game is that I did have fun. I liked it, but I, I definitely want to try it again, try some different configurations. And, you know, you did a great job of managing the game for me, but it wasn't the same as if I was standing there looking at all the cards either. Exactly, yeah, and having to uh, communicate as we do here over the internet, there's always that disconnect there. The game makes a lot more sense as you get into it, and sitting there looking at the cards, holding them and reading them is, is always easier to figure out. And to go back to your tangent real briefly, um, this is the type of game that is very easy to adapt into a quasi-role-playing situation, over on the forums uh, of this game itself, on their website, there are actually story threads with challenges built into them. So, you know, they, they, uh, there's a little bit of, of a story. You know, this hero is doing X, Y, Z, and this villain comes up to fight him. And they say, if you want to play through the story thread, use these heroes to fight this villain in this environment. And then depending on your win condition you can move on to different chunks of the story. So it's kind of like role-playing light. Yeah. In that you can see the overall movement, and for example, let's say your hero gets knocked out, he would not participate in the next battle then. So you could bring in another hero, or you could actually be down a player as you're moving through. It's, it's not really role-playing, because you're not taking skills and actions and you know moving a story forward, but it does introduce the concept of putting a deeper element into a simple game. Gotcha. And I think that also adds for the replayability. Obviously, there's a number of heroes, number of villains, number of environments. I'm sure there's a crap load of you know, variability and different versions that you can play, but there still is going to come a point where there's a bit of sameness. You know, it's not going to be that different. So adding that story element where you play certain specific configurations, I think, can add some replay replayability to the game, which is also another thing I like about Legendary, where they have, like, I have the app that lets me randomize the heroes and the villains. So it's not just me, hey, I like Thor, so I'll play Thor every time, but I just randomize it and kind of see what's happening. Mm-hmm. And also, I, I will say that the game looks good. The tokens in particular, like... I didn't really get to play with them very much, but the, they're, they're very well made. They have the, the four-color comic book feel to them. They're all very big pal, bam, zow type stuff, the hit point trackers. So the, the, the game is very well put together. It looks pretty, and it was my first time out was fun, so I'll definitely be trying it again. Cool. So let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the bugbear. I don't. We actually didn't do it on purpose. The whole owlbear to bugbear transition. We were just thinking of another kind of not really iconic to D and D because it's in other role playing games, but it's like a staple that you know I can't I can't remember the last game I played that there wasn't a bugbear in there somewhere. So we, we kind of talked before we got started about what we were going to talk about this, and you know a bugbear is of the goblinoid family. So goblins, hobgoblins, bugbears, they all kind of go together. And I think for me the the most common way that I use them is as sort of a mid-level boss that often uh, low-level characters, level 1, level 2 especially, I'll have them fighting some goblins, and it's very, you know, very usual that the leader of the goblin tribe is a bugbear, or if it's not necessarily a tribe, whatever force they're fighting, you know, they're trying to clear out a dungeon or the village is being raided, pretty much they're being led by a bugbear is almost kind of my standard go-to. 
I, I like to flip that when we get to higher levels rather than scaling bugbears up with levels and templates is I just try to make them interesting NPCs rather than, you know, just another human that's in the woods that they run into. They run into a, an intelligent, articulate bugbear, and I just think it just adds a different level, uh, kind of a layer to an NPC because they, you know, start asking, well, who is this bugbear? Uh, I had a game once, can't remember the details, but the characters were going through this, uh, like, volcanic glass desert, and I had a bugbear that knew the tunnels extremely well and was able to help them navigate through there and stay out of the sunlight. And uh, just the fact that he was a bugbear caused endless discussion among my players on whether or not he could be trusted, which I thought was funny. He was nothing but helpful, but the fact that he was a bugbear, they kept thinking, like, are we going to have to kill this guy? So it's just a way to kind of throw a twist into a, re- a regular interaction with an NPC. So what about you, Kale? What are some ways you have used or some suggestions on how to use a bugbear effectively? Uh, well, for me, when I've used bugbears, they have always been the group of bandits along the road that the PCs uh, encounter at a fairly early level. Bugbears, which are neither bugs nor bears, are essentially a monster with a little bit of fighting skill. They've got a couple feats. They're not just going to be a mindless thing that hits you. They're smart enough to have tactics. So I have I have used them to throw at the PCs. Um, they're easy enough to manage in a big group. They're still challenging, but they're not a pushover. So a lot of times they've just been bandits on the road demanding a toll to cross a bridge or go through a certain area. They are good to be minions or thugs of a larger power. So maybe there is a regional gang or boss that gets tariffs or taxes from everyone in a certain radius, and he employs the bugbears to do so. That could uh, could lead to... Um, you know, maybe that boss is a wizard or a spellcaster or a druid, or you can still make that interesting. It doesn't have to just be a guy demanding money. You know, he could be doing this for a certain end. So, I, I think, and, and we talked about this before briefly, the way to make a bugbear interesting is not in the monster itself, but in how you use the monster in your story. And that's true for anything we've talked about in, in role playing and, and running a game. But specifically with bugbears, they're kind of a blank slate. I said it last time we talked about the owlbear. They're going to sit there and hit you. You know, they, They're not amazing. They don't have crazy spellcasting or uh, supernatural or extraordinary abilities. It's a thing with a sword or a club or a, a javelin to throw at you. So Right. And going back to kind of what um, Angry we talked about on our one of our previous podcasts about playing the monsters, they are intelligent, they're very cunning, and they're vicious. So when you're playing them at the table, it you know it'd be perfectly good to play them that way. And when they have a good hit, role play that out as as Angry suggested. You know, celebrate your successes when that creature hits a creature. They're going to attack the weakest player. They're not necessarily going to attack the strongest opposition, but they're going to try to take out the wizard if they can. They're going to try to be selective in who they're attacking to, to be the most effective. You know, they, they very likely could... You know, most of the games I run is if a, if a player goes down to zero hit points, the bad guys will move on and attack the other players. But maybe the bugbear is the guy who goes, nope, I'm going to coup de gras And then, you know, that player no longer gets to play that character because they are a vicious, killing type of creature. You know, those are the types of decisions you want to make for your game, but the bugbear is the type of 
creature that would do that. They are vicious, they are mean, and they're cunning, and you should play them that way. Correct, I agree. But of course, as a, a way to spin that story, if you want to make it a little more interesting, if you give them a certain behavior that might not be typical, so if you have them be great in combat, but they choose to withdraw, or once they get a player incapacitated, they no longer pursue the attack, or some sort of random occurrence they do that, that doesn't make sense to a typical player, that's a great story element. Yeah, I can see too that they come upon like a group of bugbears in a forest or maybe in an old temple, and they speak excuse me, a different language, or they speak a language that they don't normally speak, like they speak the druidic language, uh, draconic language, or just, you know, you can even say they like they speak French. It's, it's common, but it's a different version of common, and uh, but they're very intelligent, uh, maybe even peaceful. It is the, it, there's so much possibility of a backstory there just by hinting at things like that. You don't even have to necessarily explain it, but it's just something that will get your players thinking about who are these bugbears? What's going on? Because they're they're intelligent enough to pull that off, but they're savage enough that you always wonder if you know. Going back to my earlier story, are they just setting us up to kill us in our sleep? Exactly. And to repeat myself, um, when we talked about the owl bears, uh, experienced players come to the game with certain knowledge and, and certain preconceptions of a monster or an encounter. So. If you tell your players uh, there's a bugbear in front of you, they're immediately going to make certain assumptions. And there's certainly nothing wrong with those assumptions, but it, depending on how you choose to role-play that monster, that's where the game gets interesting. So is there anything in particular, like magic item or equipment-wise, you would suggest that would uh, help with the bugbear, make them more interesting or fun mm. to play? Well, I mean, I've always kind of just use the default of what's in the book. Um, if I want to make them a more difficult encounter, I might give them better armor or a, a better weapon. You know, they're carrying great axe instead of a morning star. And that's, uh, that might be a hook there. You know, you see a, a troop of bugbears and they're decked out with awesome gear. Well, where did they get the gear from? Are they being backed by someone? Uh, do they have a, a sponsor? Uh, did they stumble across a treasure trove? Did they get lucky and kill someone and take their gear? I mean, that, those are a couple great little story hooks there. I'm just thinking of a bugbear with a rapier. There's there's a story in that. Yeah, because that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes no sense. No, it's it's a bugbear version of the Nigo Montoya. That's right. You killed my father, prepared to die. All right. So we will move on from the bugbear. Kind of the, the the main portion of this episode was going to be synergies. Mm -hmm. uh, as I mentioned earlier, Matthew sent us. Uh, he actually got his own pack of magic cards, opened them up, and came up with his own story, and then sent us the cards so that we could do the same. I, I put them on the website, and uh, so we had a uh, one other person. He he actually was his his uh, his kind of handle is that one GM, and he's been uh, communicating with us quite frequently here recently on the podcast and Facebook, and he wrote one as well. So I'm going to start with Matthews, uh, and I'm, I, I have intentionally not looked at them until now. I printed them right before we came down here because I didn't want to sort of you know, cross-pollinate my ideas with theirs in case there was some 
uh, overlap. So I, I apologize if my dramatic reading lacks something, but this will be the first time that I'm actually looking at these. Um, so Matthews is pretty short. It's, it's really more of a bullet point, but um, he wrote a great hunger is rising in the monsters of the lands. A traveling philosopher brings these tidings heard from the words of a seer. Games will be played to find the hero with enough battle-wise valor to wield the fleet feather sandals saving the people. This quest will lead through the forest filled with the sedge scorpions, up into the mountains filled with ill-tempered cyclopses and two-headed cerebus. They must pass through the guardians of Miletus, but beware the cavern lampids that lie in wait. Once beyond these troubles, the heroes will meet Helod's emissary, who leads them to the place where the spear of Helod rests. The heroes return with the weapon, defend their people, but they come back a little bit off. They're basically the weapon is cursed, and it's causing them to... Uh, the name of the card he uses is Baleful Idion, so he's saying that the, the weapon is cursed, and it causes them to not come back quite right, which would uh, leave uh, room open for a sequel. So any thoughts on that synergy there, Caleb? That's a a great overall long story campaign. And it's definitely not just a one-night session. You've got a couple months of game there. You know, you can, whether you want to have them actually, have the players actually fight each other with their PCs in those games, or if you want the winner to assemble the rest of them in a party, that would be fun. A lot of little missions there to get through all the monsters and find the right thing. Lots of room for open story development find little hooks there when they're trying to find those items or get from point A to point B. So you can really explore this larger world pretty easily, but still stay on task of of getting what they need in their original mission. Yeah, I agree. I, mean, I think it's, it's a good outline. It's a good template. There's, you know, it, it's got a point to it. You know that there's something bad happening. You have the possibility of, of getting a weapon that will help you defeat this, and then there's stuff in the way. And, you know, is Simple as it may sound, but that's a good D&D adventure. You have a problem, you have a solution, and there's more problems in the way to getting to that solution. Uh, it's pretty much like the definition of a dungeon crawl. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually funny, there, there's a, there is quite a lot of overlap between my synergy and his. Reading through that, there's quite a few. I mean, I use them a little bit differently, but there's definitely some similarity, as you guys will hear when I go through mine. Now, this next one is long. Where Matthew went bullet point, that one GM went prose. So uh, bear with me. And this uh, is actually on the website as well. He wrote it as a comment, but I, like I said, I have not looked at it yet because I didn't want to uh, mess mine up. So uh, opening on Miletus. It's an ancient city with a rich and magical history. Miletus is ruled by a line of pharaohs, magical priest kings, who always take the name Heliod. The PCs are agents of Heliod, men and women uh, singled out at birth and trained from a young age to be specialists in the service of Heliod. The game begins with the PCs receiving orders from their superior, the philosopher, diplomat, advisor, and consort of Heliod, to enter the barren forest south of Miletus and return with the fleet feather sandals. They are given the spear of Heliod, a high-quality weapon which has been enchanted to point unerringly towards these sandals. Much of the action of this game is likely to happen in the forest. The fleet feather sandals are several days' journey by horse into the forest. The PCs must pass through a long, dark tunnel in the forest. In this tunnel, they enter a they encounter a cavern lamp pad. This fey creature claims to have fallen from her star and gotten lost in this series of tunnels. She begs the PC to help her find her way out of the tunnels and to find a way back to her star. At the end of the tunnel is an ill-tempered cyclops. This giant is very powerful and very angry. The falling lamp had destroyed his hut, and he has been waiting at the tunnel for several days since he is too large to enter it. This monster is way above the PC's pay grade, 
with the help of the Spear of Heliod and with the Lamphead's meager powers, they might be able to slay it. It would be easier to sneak past it by night or trick it in some way. Said scorpions are found throughout the barren forest, but a swarm of them infest the dry clearing in which the Fleet Feather Sandals are found. The Spirit of Heliod is attached to the Fleet Feather Sandals. This is the real Heliod, who died only a week ago while secretly traveling through the forest. He simply wants to find peace and pass on the afterlife he has earned. Upon hearing about the powers of the sandals, the Lamphead realizes that they are the only way she can return to her star. She begs the PCs to allow her to borrow them. Once she returns to her star, she can send the sandals back to the PC via starlight the next night. Multiple two-headed Cerebruses are scouring the forest searching for the spirit of Heliod. These are monsters from which have come from the underworld and seek to unfairly drag the spirit of Heliod back with them. Heliod's emissary appears to the PCs on the night after they find the sandals. It bears a message from Melitas and warns the PC of trickster spirits that dwell in the forest and they should be wary of its illusions and lies. This emissary was sent from the consort as insurance against the possibility of the old Heliod spirit surviving. There are no trickster spirits. At their return to the tunnel after finding the fleet feather sandals, the PCs find the whole cave system filled with dirt dragons, or, dag or groundlings. These creatures were driven out of the Lampid's fall and kept at bay by the ill-tempered Cyclops. If the Cyclops is not slain, it seems to have wandered off. If the PCs do not allow the Lampid to bar the sandals, the she intends to stay in the tunnel near the site of her fall and hopes that one of her sisters will descend to find her. She's very unwilling to venture into Miletus, but it is possible that the PCs might convince her. If the Lamphead accompanies the PCs, she will use her powers to help them. If they let her borrow the sandals, she is true to her word and return them the next night, along with a powerful magic item or enchantment. The rest of the game's action would take place in Miletus. At the PCs, as the PCs finally exit the Baron Forest, a great crashing of trees is heard behind them. If they did not slay the Cyclops, this is what comes crashing to the trees. If they did slay the Cyclops, it is a stronger mate seeking revenge. Either way, the Cyclops has a pack of dirt dragons with it. The Cyclops will chase the PCs all the way to the edge of Miletus if they run. At the entrance, the giant enchanted guardians refuse to allow them enter. They detain or attempt to detain the PCs in the watch house with the help of the mortal watchmen. The guardians are strong foes, resistant but not immune to most magic. If the PCs run from the Cyclops, the guardians and watchmen at first attempt to detain the PCs, but then find themselves busy fighting the Cyclops. If the PCs are detained, they are approached by their superior and asked to hand over the fleet feather sandals and the spear. The consort promises to release the PCs and explain that it is a misunderstanding. As soon as she possesses the sandals, she instructs the guardians and watchmen to imprison the PCs. If the PCs avoid detainment, they meet the consort and her escort of guards partway to the palace. She thanks the PCs and asks for the spear and sandals, requesting that the PCs return to the palace and await more instructions. If the PCs are imprisoned, they meet a famous athlete and secret son of the old Heliod. He was imprisoned while the PCs were gone and is scheduled to be secretly executed. Together, he helps the PCs escape prison and return to the palace. The PCs who are awaiting instructions will find that the secret son of the old Heliod breaks into the palace through their window. He quickly explains himself and his suspicions that the consort is plotting something evil. The consort is indeed conducting a dark ritual which will undo the magic of both the Fleet Feather Sandals and the Spear of Heliod. This power will be channeled into the consort herself, granting her semi-godlike powers of Heliod and effectively making her immortal. In this final confrontation, the PCs must face the defenders of Miletus, smaller versions of the Guardian which have been in secret production. One of their defining features is the rotating crossbows that fire a flurry of arrows. Assuming the PCs stop the ritual, the spirit of Heliod bestows this power and title upon his son, 
who richly rewards the PCs. If Consort completes the ritual and dispels the spirit of the old Heliod, when she is slain, her power returns to the spear, and the son of Heliod claims it as his birthright of rulership. The end. Wow. Yeah. I wish I'd read that beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very detailed story. Yeah, there's. Um, I liked how he also has sort of if thens. So it's yep. not necessarily, you know, like on a railroady type thing where you do this and this and this. It's like, well, this is what's in front of you. You can either kill it or you can sneak around it. If you kill it, this happens, and if you sneak around it, that happens. So I really like that aspect of it overall. Yeah, uh, he's definitely planning for every eventuality that his players could throw at him. You know, he he took the elements and figured out a story he wanted to tell, wanted to share with his players, and then said, okay, well, I know people are going to be unpredictable, so if there's a monster, they could kill it, or they could try to get around it, or they could bribe it. So what would I do in these situations? I don't think he was wanting to, like you said, railroad or force them into a certain action, but he was certainly preparing himself so that he knew what could happen next at the gaming table. So very thorough, very detailed. That seems like a, a pretty decently long campaign that he was going to be running there with these guys. Yeah, I, and I think, I mean, I could I could probably run it just about just off of that outline, you know, just each night at the table bringing the monster manual for the creatures and a few other notes, but, I mean, that that's almost a module in my mind. Like, if you just threw, threw some maps and DCs, you'd be ready to publish that thing. Yeah, and, uh, you know, flesh out some of the, the flavor texts and add in who says what and, and what <laughs> this looks like and what that looks like. Right. So just pop in mind, I see this as probably a higher level game just with some of the uh, events that are happening and, and interacting with a fate creature from the stars. Like, I, I would see this probably 8th to 15th level. Uh, you know, probably fifteenth at at the, at the end when you're dealing with a near immortal godlike creature. Definitely, yeah. And if you start, if you start lower, it would be pretty rapid uh, level gain to yeah. get up to it. No, but I thought uh, that was a very good job. That one, GM. Absolutely. All right, Caleb. What did you come up with? Well, last time we did a synergy, I kind of wrote a little story out. This time, I tried to play it a little bit more on the loose side. So I just have some general ideas to share. It seems to me like almost everything in this deck, all these concepts, are very much Greek mythology-inspired. Yeah, they are. That the, the actual set, I should say that, I probably will go back and add that into the intro, uh, but we use a Theros pack, and oh. it is intentionally Greek-inspired. Ah, gotcha. I, I was thinking, how? what is the probability that all of these cards had the same theme and were in a random deck? But <laughs> thanks for ripping that rug out from under me. But no, when, as I read these names here, um, you know, I just saw, I saw you know, bits from the Odyssey or Hercules or, or that kind of thing. So I, I kind of went really classic, you know, really cliche. I, I saw a, a traveling philosopher giving the hero a certain mission or certain advice to, to follow through on, kind of lay out his destiny at a young age. I saw a lot of trials that the hero or group of heroes would need to face. Um, you know, 
taking out these giant monsters in a given area, fighting the Cyclops, uh, the Severus. I, I saw the Baleful Eidolon as a another monster to fight. You know, maybe they had to track down a former arena athlete and learn something from him, a certain skill or a certain item. Um, maybe the trophy that the athlete won is actually a key to get into a certain dungeon or a temple that the philosopher sent them to. When I saw Artisan's Sorrow, I, I viewed that as a, an, an item, a, a goal that the, the hero had to get to. So maybe it was the somehow the emotions of this sorrow became physical. Uh, it might have been a statue or the artisan's tears somehow solidified into crystal and it was being held on top of a mountain somewhere and uh, the hero had to get through all these different guardians to get there. Maybe they had to find uh, the spear and the sandals in order to ascend the mountain and avoid some of the traps and pitfalls. So, I mean, it, it played out uh, kind of very big movie moments, you know, uh, like uh, Jason on the Pegasus using the Medusa head <laughs> to turn um, the Kraken into stone, you know. That, that's what I see when I see these, these elements and these concepts. So, however I played out the game, I would want to put lots of those big cinematic exciting moments in there. So, less of a story from me, more conceptual, but you know, different ways to use these these concepts and ideas to make an exciting game. Okay, so would you see that as something like you would start at level 1 campaign or would you want your PCs to already be heroes before they embark on these journeys? Mm. I, I think in this context, in this type of um, Greek mythology, you got to earn the right to be a hero. You know, you might have a destiny. You might have the philosopher is really Zeus in disguise and he's pushing you in the right direction, but you still have to earn. You still have to go through the trial. So, yeah, I would say start at a low level, maybe two or three or four, and then uh, you know, grind your way through as you're, as you're overcoming these uh, these monsters and trials and getting to the end game. So uh, the ones that I've done so far have been very grandiose, to say the least. That's kind of my style. So I, I tried to intentionally this time go more linear, straightforward, gamey. And you can tell me how well I did. Okay. So uh, I envision this, that the landscape is very Greekish with numerous city-states, that uh, they get along well enough with one another, and then Heliod's emissary is seen, and much like, and I want to say that the imagery on these cards was very evocative to me. I got, not, you know, a lot of times just the, the image himself really kind of hit me strongly. But so I'm thinking that some sort of like albino stag has been seen in the forest near the city that RPC start in, and this is a herald that a temporal dungeon, so this is a dungeon that only appears randomly in time, is about to return, and within this dungeon is the legendary Spear of Heliod. So all the numerous city-states are gathering their champions, and each city-state will send their PC or PC party to try to claim the spear for their own. So right as the sort of the games are going to be held to determine who is worthy to seek the spear from each city-state. A traveling philosopher takes a few moments and speaks to the PC and kind of tries to warn them off a little bit and just gives them some uh, something to think about it. And he will kind of stress 
that you know the sword isn't always the best way, even if you are going to take up this mission. And I, I don't have the details, but I want him to say something that is like a key or clue that will come up later. Like there's going to be a riddle, maybe something he says will be the answer to the riddle. So if they decide to blow off the old man or don't talk to him, then they would not get that they'd get that clue. So the city sets up a, a series of challenges to find out who the most worthy party would be. Uh, you know, this would be very combat focused, but if you have a party of diverse characters, you might set up a challenge that's, you know, more like a obstacle course for the rogue or something like that. But it's basically going to be like a tournament of champions. And at some point during the, the competition, somebody's going to try to poison one of the PCs. I'm assuming that the PCs are doing well and they want to try to take them out. Don't know who, but at some point there'll be a poison attempt. Assuming the PCs win, the final challenge is to defeat a Cyclops that dens in a nearby city. If they defeat the Cyclops, they will be able to get the prize, which is the Fleet Feather Sandals that the Cyclops guards, which will allow them short bursts of flight and or haste as a magical effect. Once they have been chosen, they will make their way towards the Temporal Dungeon. Uh, along the, the way, they will be ambushed by direwolves. If you have not noticed, I have, a, I have a, a fondness for direwolves attacking people in the forest. The first test that they will face is the Guardians of Miletus, and this is where the riddle will come in. And if they have the answer, they will be able to get in no problems. If not, they have to fight a stone golem. Inside the twisting passages of this temporal dungeon, they will face the two-headed Cerberus. Um, I like the idea of it's actually a three-headed Cerberus, but one of the heads has been cut off, and I'll call him Fluffy from Harry Potter. <laughs> About halfway through the dungeon, they will face the Cavern Lampad, who will try to swoon the PCs with a mental attack to take a lesser artifact called the Artisan Sorrow and leave with it rather than continuing on uh, after the spear. The PCs have the option to just do this. If they take this Artisan Sorrow, which is still a powerful artifact, but not as powerful, then they can just leave. If not, the Lamphead will try to kill them uh, and not let them take it. Finally, once they reach the spear, they will have a short flashback of everything or everyone that they have killed on their way here. So once the game started, every creature that they have killed, they will have a flashback of that battle, and then they have to refight a ghostly version of everything again in reverse order. So that's kind of the point of the philosopher early on about trying to say not to kill everything, because everything they kill, they then have to fight again. So, so basically, if they haven't killed a whole lot of stuff, if they've used more trickery and, and that kind of stuff, this will be a lot easier. Uh, once they start the fight, they are unable to rest or recover, but healing magic would work normally. Once they have the spear, they can return back to their city where they, where with its power, the city will want to go to war with all the other city-states. The other city-states will in turn want to go to war to try to obtain it. The traveling philosopher will come back and reveal himself as Heliod and celebrate their victories. He is no longer required to protect the spear and wants to spend a few hundred years debasing himself. So that's where the first part would end with the, the looming war. So that was my version of a short direct adventure. That was short? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking two <laughs> sessions. <laughs> wow. See, that seemed to me just as as kind of long and deep as some of the other ideas. And I, I really liked it. Well, no, okay, I, I see how that could be shorter, definitely. But I, I think it... I. I think you got me kind of hooked into that story, so I wanted it to be longer. I really, really liked how uh, you would bring back the um, the slain foes. I think that's a pretty cool idea. Maybe something you could add would be if the PCs didn't kill someone, or let them live, or just you know 
just inca incapacitated them and didn't kill them outright, their spirit somehow comes into that as well and gives them a boost or a bonus or healing or something like that. I don't know. Right, so um, not, not just the negative of having to fight what you've killed, but a bonus for those that you spared. Yeah. Or, I can see that. Or if it just wants to be absolutely brutal, then yeah, just forget that part. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they're definitely, again, going back to, to Matthews, there was some overlap that we both were seeking the spear. We both were going to have arena-type games to get it. The yeah. Baleful Idion was the final boss. So... Uh, again, I, I can definitely see where there was some some overlap between the two, but that baleful idiot, especially like when I saw that the the image of that card, that was just the first thing that I came to mind is that you have to fight a soul, and that's really what brought the whole thing together for me. Like I I wrote it once without that that part of it, and then when, I don't know, just kind of working through it again. To me, that's my favorite part of it as well is the kind of the morality lesson that the more you kill, the more you have to fight. Definitely, yeah. Well, I, I think. The fact that all of these synergy ideas have shared some some core foundational elements speaks to the nature of the fantasy realm and Dungeons and Dragons. You know, we bring to the table a certain perception of given facts. You know, when we see a named item, it's something important. You know, when we see some monsters that seem to be really powerful they're probably guarding it, or you have to get something from them to move forward. And I, I, that's just what makes D&D iconic. That's what makes it classic. I mean, geez, we grew up watching Jason and the Argonauts and Hercules, and that's what we expect. It's what we want. When, when we're playing Dungeons & Dragons, that's what we want to do. We want to find the treasure, get the best item, and kill whatever's in your way to get to. <laughs> You're right. Well, and I do think, uh, you know, the cards being sort of Greek-themed, I also think that did, you know, you could have gone out of your way, I could have easily gone out of my way to try to come up with different ways to use the cards, but I don't think you, I, I didn't feel like I needed to. Like, I feel like that's still a solid adventure that's got plenty of room for role-play. There's very combat-heavy, particularly for my type of games. There's still a story there, and, you know, there's a couple of them that I used, I think, interestingly, but you didn't have to go out of your way. And the point of doing this, the whole point of this energy is to get inspiration. And if you have to make that hard, then you, then there's no, there's no, there's no point. The, the benefit is that it's easy or somewhat easy to pick a package of magic cards, throw them on the table and go, okay, I, I've at least got tonight. We can, we can play tonight right now based on what I see on these cards and we'll make up the rest later. Exactly. Yeah. It's... Go with the classics. Don't don't break your back trying to think up some crazy off-the-wall use for an item or a monster or a situation. If you're stuck for ideas, keep it simple. Okay. They are classic for a reason. Though the one thing I will throw in there, it, it, during my first version, rather than have the Guardians of Miletus ask the riddle, I actually was going to have the Cerebus ask the riddle, and I was going to do the old one side tell, one head tells a lie, one head tells the truth. Anybody who's seen the movie Labyrinth, Labyrinth. pretty much knows how that works. But you got to realize, I'm I'm getting close to forty. There's a lot of people that I could play Dungeons and Dragons with who've never seen that movie. So it may not be as cliche for the younger audience as it is for maybe someone our age. So I think you could get away with throwing it in, and you might you might have one person at the table who knows it right away, but I bet some of your players will be like, whoa. 
that's true. I mean, you got to play to your audience, and you got to exploit their social context of what they bring to the table from time to time. But I don't, I don't think that uh, that cliche came from Labyrinth, did it? Wasn't it? Well, I don't know if it came from there, but it's in there. That's, it's that's one of the challenges she faces is yeah. the two-headed thing. You know, I tell the lie, I, he tells the truth. I right. think. And it's probably been in other places, but that's where I know it from. Yeah, I, I'm sure that is a much older fantasy trope uh, in in the world of storytelling. But it's it's a it's a very classic one. I'm trying to think off the top of my head of any way you can make that more interesting, but nothing's coming to mind right off the bat. Yeah, it's a classic. Go with it. Who cares? Yeah. So uh, we, we will throw this out. So if you're listening, if you have a great D&D themed riddle because that's something that I've struggled with because again you're usually a couple things happen either somebody at the table knows it instantly right. or no one knows it and you have to go to Google and then it stops being fun so if you have a really cool riddle that you could use in your game please send it in to us and we'll cover it I also want to thank Matthew for one playing along buying the cards and he even offered he doesn't play magic if anyone wants those cards let us know and he'll send them to you and then I want to thank that one GM for playing along as well and uh, anyone else who who listened cards uh, I'll list them out all the cards that were used so you can see them but this is probably our most popular segment based on the number of comments we get back and interaction so it seems to be something people like so we're going to probably keep doing it not necessarily every episode but pretty regularly plus it's a lot of fun i I just i like it as a creative exercise so uh please you know again send us comments send us feedback let us know what you think and uh if you come up with a good idea on how to use those cards that isn't quite as straightforward as we have please let us know that as well all right so i want to move into the the last main topic that we're going to cover tonight i finally have had a chance to review White Hack. It's the game that Olaf Olafsson uh, emailed me a long, long time ago. Way too long. I'm sorry, Olaf. I really should have done this sooner. He asked me to review it. It's available on Lulu. Uh, I think it was $9.99 or $10.99. It was really cheap. It's a print-on-demand, so I had it uh, probably within two weeks of ordering it. I actually had the book. It's really short. It's, uh, it's like trade paperback-sized. It's 32 pages, 31 of actual information. It's, it's a neat little system. And my, my first comment is I, I don't know that it's a game. It, it's set up to be a game, but I don't know if, if you just got this and you've never played Dungeons & Dragons before or never played role-playing games before, I don't think that there's enough in here that you could play it. I think it, it's kind of implied and assumed that you have played other things before. And, and that may be unfair, I mean, because it does have a, quite a lot of stuff in here, but I just don't know that if I had read this for the first time, I would have any clue what it was doing. There's only three classes. You have the deft, which are your roguey type characters, assassins, monks, rangers. You have the strong, your warriors, paladins, uh, not technically paladins, barbarians. And then you have the wise, which are all of your spellcasters. And it's very open. Like, like spellcasting is one of the areas where it could be fantastic or it could be broken as shit because there are no real spells. Basically, you negotiate with the game master or the judges, they're called here, and say, hey, I want to do this. Uh, this is what I'm going to say and this is what I'm going to do, and they decide if you can do that. In a lot of cases, you have to spend hit points to do that. So the DM or judge may say, okay, you can cast that fireball 
but since you're not powerful enough, you have to roll 2d6 and lose that many hit points. And that could kill you, depending on what you roll. And you cannot use magical healing to bring these wounds back. They, they heal naturally, but they don't magically heal. So if you cast a spell and, and you roll high, you could be screwed for the rest of the day. Hmm. One of the other things I think is interesting is that you have vocations. And these are kind of like jobs, kind of like backgrounds in 13th Age in a way, that if you're doing a skill check that involves your vocation, then you can get an advantage. And, and they actually have a, a, a mechanic that's similar to advantage. They call it differently. They just call it a dub, double positive or a double negative. So you roll two, number, take the best, take roll two, take the worst. Uh, they have another mechanic where if you roll the same number on both dies, in some cases, that also has an effect, which I actually think is kind of cool. Particularly if you were to if you were to roll two natural 20s on a, on a roll like that, that should mean something, or two, uh, two natural ones, that should be something bad. You also have affiliations, which are basically groups that you're a part of. It could be a guild, a school, a tribe, that also, if, if you're doing something where that affiliation would come in handy or be uh, useful, you can get an advantage on your roll, either a bonus or you get that double uh, bonus, double yeah. positive roll type of a thing. But the thing that I think is most interesting and the thing that I have already stolen, and I am I started tonight in my new D&D Next game that we're running, is called Auctions. And reading it, it sounds great. I'm not sure yet how it plays. It didn't come up in the game tonight. But I just think it's a very cool mechanic. And essentially what this is is if you have a what normally would be like a long and drawn out contest. So like you have two characters that are playing chess. You have two characters that are debating before the council trying to get their way. Uh, it could be a foot race through an unknown city. Uh, you know, it could be who can chop the tree down the fastest, that kind of thing. You have the option of making that an auction. And what that means is each person that wants to participate in this challenge has to bid. And it even suggests you can do it orderly, like you roll like an initiative and you go in order, or you can just do a free-for-all and people can shout out their bids. It just depends on how it goes. But essentially what it means is I will make my roll, but I will roll above a certain number. So, for example, let's say you and I were playing chess and we both have an intellect of 15. I would bid 1, and that means that I will get below my 15, but I will get above a 1, which pretty much you have to. That's just the way it works. You would then have the option of bidding a 2, where it means you will get below a 15 but above a 2. I could then counter and say 3, again, above a, below a 15, above a 3. And we keep narrowing down the range that we have for success. In this example, we both have the same intellect, but that's not always going to be the case. So if you have someone who's really fast, they have a lot more room to play with than someone who's kind of slow, but everybody can play. Once the bidding has stopped because no one else wants to bid, Whoever has the most challenging bid or the highest bid goes first. If they succeed, they win. If they don't succeed, they've lost, and the next person in line would roll. And the last person in line doesn't have to roll. They win by default if everyone else fails. So in that game of chess, if we get up to an 8 and I roll a 16, I've, I've missed my check, you automatically win that game of chess. So what are your thoughts on that mechanic there, Caleb? Well, it's definitely a, a unique mechanic. I haven't seen that before. I think it is a way to make something that would otherwise just be a simple d20 roll more interesting. A little bit more player interaction, a little bit more drama and tension at the table, so that's a good thing. From your from your description, are you does it just roll 
go off a straight die roll, or are you adding modifiers? The way I understand it is it's it's more like the old version of D&D where you get, want to get under your numbers. Okay. So, like, if you have an 18, rolling under an 18 is better. So the higher your number, the easier it is to roll under. So I don't think you would add anything to the roll. I think it's a straight die roll based off of your attribute that's involved. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense. I don't know how I feel about that, though. It, and this might be a little bit odd for me to say because I'm usually on the other side of this argument, but making it off of an arbitrary roll of the dice seems to really take you away from your character. I mean, if, if I get to add some sort of modifier or make use of a background or a story element, I, I feel a little bit more connected to, to my character. If I am bidding or gambling that I will roll a, a d20 and land between a 5 and a 10, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with my character. Well, I would say the counter to that is, in our example, we had the same attribute score, but that's probably not going to happen very often. So if you have a character who's very dexterous, then you have a lot more wiggle room. You're more likely to win because you're dexterous, and then it, it plays to your gambling nature is, you know, how, how high of a bid will you go? You know, there's, no, there's nothing that says you have to go 1, then 2, then 3, then 4. When someone says, you know, I bid 1, you go, I bid 15. And you only have one one number that will work if that plays to the type of character that you are. I get what you're saying, and I don't disagree with you, but I don't think it's quite as uh, morose as you're saying. No, I you're right. I, I see it more clearly from from your point of view, from the way you explained it there. And you know, that's I guess that's that's kind of my uh, my fault there being a bad role player. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, not at all. One of the things they also mention in here, he says, you know, you could make it more role-playing, too, by adding a description. So someone might say, I take a shortcut over the crumbling bridge, seven. So you are adding story elements and role-playing elements, not just saying one, then two, then three, then four, then five. It, sure. You know, how how are you, what are you doing in-game to represent that? So, if, again, playing chess you know, maybe it's a particular type of move that you're doing or, you know, a defense, uh, an attack. Are you making an intentionally bad move just to confuse the person? It's a high risk, high reward. So that would be like, you know, a nine. So I, I can see where the way I described it the first time was very clinical, but there is definitely some room for role play and story elements in there. Yeah. I, I think my, my feelings, my opinion are simply because I haven't read the source material and I haven't played it. You know, I'm just going off of what we've been talking about here for the past couple hours. I'm sure if we were sitting around the table and I was a little more into a character and invested in a game, I'm sure it would flow a little bit more naturally. Yeah, and as I said, I'm, I'm adopting this into my, my current game, but it didn't come up tonight. We had our first session. So I hopefully we'll have an actual play report on it in the near future where I can say, yeah, it was great, or yeah, it just yeah, it didn't do much for me. Uh, we've said before, like, I love the idea of skill challenges in 4th edition. I've never ran one very well myself, and and I know that's a common theme that they're hard to run. And This might be the same thing. It might be great in paper, but it may not play well at the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about White Hack is it gives an example of sort of like a campaign. It gives a couple different examples of stories that you might run through. They're very interesting. I actually really like the, the kind of the idea. It's 
it's more of a game than in, than a campaign, I guess. I mean, you could probably play several games, but it's not necessarily a long-term thing. I don't want to give too much away, but I would say that it's probably worth the 10 bucks alone just for the last three or four pages to get some inspiration for a game. Hmm. Definitely worth buying. I think for, for 10 bucks, absolutely something I'm glad that I have that I can put into my library. And um, at some point in time, I might just play a pure white hat game just to see how, how it works and, and report back on that as well. There are some, uh, again, I'm just kind of flipping through the book, and then uh, the, the stronger your fighters, there's 10 different uh, like maneuvers, and your character can have up to three of them, and then every time they attack, they can use one of the three. So it gives some differentiation between the characters and which ones you pick and which ones you use. And, and then the deft have a chance to do additional damage, like a sneak attack, whenever certain situations happen. So it's very cool. I, I mean, like I said, uh, for 10 bucks, I can't recommend it enough. If there's anyone out there who's listening who's played a game of White Hack or maybe you're, you love White Hack, you're a fan of it, I'd love to hear more about your games and how they play and particularly about the auction mechanic. Like maybe give us a description of a time that you used it that worked really well. Maybe a time that you used it and uh, didn't go so well and what we can do to do differently. You can give us feedback and comments at our website dndacademy.com You can check out previous podcasts at our website and subscribe to future ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a topic, we'd love to hear it. Email your ideas to podcast at dndacademy.com and you can connect with us on Twitter at dnd underscore academy. As always, thanks for listening and remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.